Welcome to Human Monsters. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge Susan Palmer as the premier authority on this case. Her research amounted to her book, The Nuwabian Nation. The founder, according to Malachi Dwight York, he was born on June 26, 1935, in New York City. He went by several aliases. The date of his birth has also been a matter of dispute. The FBI has stated for the record that he was born in the state of Maryland in 1945. Supposedly, he fudged his birth year because he claimed to be the great-grandson of the Sudanese Mahdi, a significant figure in Islam, whose rebirth was predicted to happen in the West every hundred years. In 1977, he changed his title to Al-Mahdi. This was all arranged to add an air of legitimacy to his claims to be a messiah. He wanted his followers to believe that he was the Hadith of Islam that predicts a reformer, or Mujadid, which is dispatched to earth every hundred years. Dwight declared in 1973 that his father was a man named Al-Hadi, Abdur, Rahman, Al-Mahdi, the grandson of the well-known Mahdi Muhammad Ahmad, who led an uprising against the British occupation in Sudan. As a young man, Dwight York was employed as an assistant to an antique shop owner. He married his daughter, Dorothy Mae Johnson. They were both 18 years old at the time. They had five children. As Jacob said of Ms. Johnson, she was the only woman he was ever actually legally married to. York published a book in 1989 called Rebuttal to the Slanderers. In it, he said he was involved with a street gang in New York as a teenager, describing himself as a youthful offender. When the FBI did some digging on his background, they found that he had a criminal record, statutory rape, possession of a dangerous weapon, resisting a police officer. He was sentenced to a term in prison on January 6th, 1965. He was paroled on October 20th, 1967. It was during that same year when he began to attend services at the Islamic Mission of America, Incorporated. His mentor, Daoud Faisal, had a mission to establish a peaceful Muslim community as an Islamic theocracy governed in accordance with the dictates of Sharia law. Allegedly, there were as many as 100,000 members. He went as far as to purchase what was called the Talbot Estate. It was located in East Fishkill, Dutchess County, New York. It was a spiritual retreat for black Muslims that would come to be known as Medina Salam. Like York, many of Dawood's beliefs and opinions were at variance with the African-American Muslim mainstream. For instance, he condemned the Nation of Islam because they recognized W.D. Fard as divine. He also embraced and instituted a more orthodox form of Sunni Islam. In 1967, he decided that all members of his mosque 
would be required to carry Sunni identification cards to establish that they were not affiliated with the Nation of Islam. York was markedly influenced by Dawood Faisal and would pay tribute to him faithfully throughout the years. But like all cult leaders, he was determined to go about things his own way. His ego wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Following his release from prison, York earned a living by selling products of African origin on the streets of Harlem and Brooklyn. Among the items were incense, African perfumes, and body oils. He would also buttonhole his customers into philosophical discussions. He described how his research and affiliations prepared him for this. I began publishing the pamphlets of peace I wrote, typed, illustrated, reproduced, and distributed them almost single-handedly. I diligently treaded the streets of New York and the surrounding areas as I propagated Sufi Islam. I was blessed with the gift of gab and combined with a sense of humor and charisma that draws people of all walks of life to me. People began to wonder who this man that spoke so profoundly and so persistently on many subjects which were previously considered unmentionable. It was about this time that he developed and preached about what he considered to be the truth of the nature of the black race. The revelations most commonly embraced and disseminated by such Nation of Islam luminaries as noble Drew Ali and Elijah Muhammad concerned the plight of the so-called Asiatics. York contradicted this by saying that black people originated in the Sudan region of Africa. His followers thenceforth used the pronouns Nuwabians and Nubia. According to the Nuwabians, the word Nuwabu is Arabic for prophet or prophecy. Another variation of the pronoun is Nubian, but it was not embraced by York because it referred to the millions of African Americans who were still, quote-unquote, sleeping under the spell of Kingu, and that they had not yet awakened to the so-called right knowledge. With a starting line at the Nubian kingdom of Sudan, he traced the lineage of black people back to the Sumerian and ancient Egyptian civilizations. He didn't stop there. He went from those terrestrial origins straight up to the heavens. He incorporated the ancient astronaut theory about the so-called Anunnaki, who were angelic extraterrestrial astronauts. They traveled from the planet Rizk and colonized Earth, where they built the first Sumerian and Egyptian civilizations. In other words, Dwight York has likely never missed an episode of Ancient Aliens. In 1967, York assembled some friends and established the Ansar Pure Sufi. He adopted the title Isa Abdullah. He set up a meeting center in New York City. Everybody had to wear black and green tunics and adopt the crescent as their official symbol, along with the Star of David and the Ankh. 
York was dubbed by Sheriff Howard Sills of Eatonton, Georgia, who was involved in his arrest as the most heinous criminal in the history of the United States. He had been branded a cult leader and con artist. He was found to be exploiting the followers of his black militant quasi-religious sect. Orthodox Sunni Muslims have passed comment on York in their own right, calling him a fake Muslim. As a Mahdi, they consider him a pretender and blasphemer. The most loyal and steadfast of York's African-American congregation disagree, saying he is innocent and was framed, censored, and brought down by a conspiracy of resentful former members who colluded with the white power structure. York's attorney, Malik Zulu Shabazz, also a member of the new Black Panther Party, declared that York is a great leader of our people, a victim of an open conspiracy by our enemy. His faithful disciples called him their master teacher and savior. They saw his mission is to wake the African-American community so that they may break the so-called spell of Kingu. They also consider York to be uniquely qualified to arm them with the right knowledge. He was a prolific author of religious tracts. They didn't reveal much about the man himself. These materials were published for academic purposes. At the All Eyes on Egypt bookstores, one can browse through all the booklets he wrote, of which there are approximately 450. As previously mentioned, he wrote and edited them himself. He allegedly plagiarized much of the content. He published under pseudonyms. Topics included mystical Islam, scientific theories of ufology, American blackosophy, principles from New Age mystic Edgar Cayce's books, U.S. Patriot Conspiracy Theories, Black Freemasonry, and more. DVDs were also produced, which featured him pontificating at his Savior's Day events in Georgia in the late 1990s. Other performances documented were captured at the Brooklyn Mosque during the Ansaru Allah era of the 1980s. Unlike a fire and brimstone preacher one might encounter in a Baptist church, York's delivery involves metaphorical expression laced with paradoxical concepts and humor. He and his entire flock were African American. His ideas were heavily informed by black nationalism. He was influenced to a large degree by leaders like Marcus Garvey, Noble Drew Ali, Elijah Muhammad, Stokely Carmichael, and other leading figures in the Blackosophy movement. His racialistic vision differed considerably from that of the Nation of Islam, as he rejected fundamentalism. He also did not embrace the politically slanted philosophy of the Black Panthers. York drew his inspiration from the ancient esoterica of Gnosticism. He wasn't mounting a social revolution. His objective was to be a pedagogical device to awaken his flock. He referred to their mentality at the onset as sleep, his mission statement. I have devoted my visit to this planet to the resurrection of the mentally dead, which I affectionately refer to as mummies. 
As far as the so-called alternative altars of black history go, York will be remembered as a messiah, prophet, mystic, and philosopher. He proposed solutions to the socio-economic struggles of African Americans. His approach was to create a theodicy whose intention was to bring clarity of their perspective of the 400 years of suffering that were visited upon their people. He wanted them to feel morally and spiritually uplifted. York established the so-called Black Jeremiad in America. In the Holy Tablets, the Nuwabian Bible, he wrote the following, But they all knew a Savior was coming. Some thought it was Marcus Garvey, who wanted to go back to Africa. Others thought Noble Drew Ali. Others thought it was Elijah Muhammad or his teacher, W.F.D. Muhammad. Others thought it was Clarence 13X. Even others thought it was Martin Luther King. Some said it was Rap Brown or Stokely Carmichael from the 60s, or Eldridge Cleaver or Bobby Seale. Some thought it was Ron Karenga or Leroy Jones. Some think it's Wareth D. Fard, son of Elijah Muhammad. Others think it is Minister Louis Farrakhan, or Yahweh Ben Yahweh, or Ben Ami Carter. And even others think it is themselves, and the list of saviors goes on. In the early 1900s, all the way up to 1970 A.D., when something new started happening, a teaching unlike any other started spreading. 1968. Another name change for the congregation. Nubian Islamic Hebrews. Their dress code was changed so that they would wear African robes, otherwise known as dashikis, and black fezes. If you're going to tell people aliens built the pyramids, you might as well play dress up too. You're on a roll. His Nubians were to be identified by a small bone in their ears and a nose ring. Not that that would reinforce any stereotypes or anything. York gave himself a new title to go along with these changes, Imam Isa, colloquially referred to as Imam Jesus. He would proselytize about the racialist myth of the Canaanites. He told his flock that their fair complexions were a consequence of the curse of Ham. From 1973 to 1992, he claimed to be the Mahdi and led an Islamic community in Brooklyn known as the Ansaru Allah community. Oddly, in 1992, York did an about-face and suddenly repudiated Islam and pulled the plug on the AAC. He went retrograde, emphasizing the Hebrew and Jewish themes of the religion he created. He dispensed with his title of Mahdi. He dubbed himself the Lamb and was to be addressed by his followers as Rabboni. He established what he called the Holy Tabernacle Ministries. Dress up and make believe informed many of their practices. They would walk the streets of New York dressed as ancient Babylonians. They even performed morality plays on the sidewalk for the benefit of a cynical, jaded, disinterested New York public. They shouted their lines to ensure they wouldn't be ignored, but it would take a lot more than that to catch a New Yorker's attention. 
The HTM, to some degree, secularized the organization, making it easier for non-believers to swallow their beliefs. They advocated for science and independent research. They even used slogans like, check it out, and do your research. The faith was presented as a study of the facts, and as factology. Note, Microsoft Word stuck a red squiggly line under the word factology. It was around this time that York gave himself yet another name, Yanuan. He named himself after an alien from the planet Iluwan in the galaxy of Rizk. They were supposedly a geyser of advanced scientific knowledge from a technologically superior civilization. York and the executive leaders moved to Georgia and went to work on constructing an Egyptian village. Note, they spelled Egyptian with two eyes. The village was promoted as the Mecca of the West. For the umpteenth time, he changed the name of the organization, this time to the Yamasi Native American Moors of the Creek Nation. They consecrated this land, dubbing it a sovereign nation, a designation that is far from legally binding. In keeping with the Native American theme, York declared himself a descendant of Pocahontas on his mother's side. He proclaimed that his followers were so-called Red Amerindians, who were members of the Yamasi tribe of the Creek Nation. They adopted new uniforms, cowboy hats, boots, belts, fringed shirts, and jeans. If you've ever asked yourself, why is there no cowboy religion? You now have an answer. The master teacher was by then referred to as Meku, or Chief Black Eagle. Throughout the years, York and his devotees would refer to themselves as Black Jews, Muslims, Brown Moors, and Red Indians. Acknowledging the extraterrestrial theories, they would identify as green. The theory was that their skin turned brown as their intergalactic ancestors entered the atmosphere. Former Ansar Abdul Motal shed light on the decision. Former member Ansar Abdul Motal shed light on the decision to change the group's name to Nubian Islamic Hebrews. Its purpose was to attract people, black people, anyone seeking Islamic knowledge, also to attract black Jews. The title of the organization has changed and will keep changing as a psychological ploy to attract people and replenish those who leave. There was a time when the African drum was a symbol, and when the steel drum became the symbol to accommodate people f coming from the Caribbean. He took on titles like the Lion of Judah, because a lot of these people were Rastafarians formerly. He packaged himself wisely. He just reorganized his presentation. The FBI insisted that York used spirituality to amass an army of co-conspirators that would help to consolidate what was really an organized crime group. His followers saw it differently. They saw his as a pedagogical device, as he did. They explained it in a tract that was published in 1992. 
We, the Nubian people, went through a religious metamorphosis. In the 1960s to the 1970s, our spiritual guide, Raboni, he took us through the religion of Christianity. Also in the 1970s, he taught us about African, 5%, Hebrews, and Islamic doctrines, which was the time of knowledge. During the 1980s, he educated us about Egyptology and Islam, which gave us wisdom. Now in the 1980s, there is no faith in any foolishness, only truth and wisdom you couldn't possibly overstand. He has taught us that he took us through all these phases in order to create an immunity from all the garbage that we've been taught all of our lives by the evil one. We had to live through it to make it. They claim this method encouraged inquiry and skepticism. To quote one devotee, When I talk to a Jew or a Christian, I can really talk because I have lived through their experience. So I can't be fooled. Offering his viewpoint on the so-called transformations or tests of loyalty, York wrote in the Holy Tablets, At first, many people joined the mission because it was the style to be black and cultural. I drew many hypocrites, phonies who just wanted to play Muslim. They didn't want to build a nation. They just wanted to dress in African clothing, play drums, and listen to me speak. I called them the first fruits. In 1970 and 2 AD, after returning from Sudan, I drew a literal line in the Majid floor and said, those who wanted their culture but did not want to sacrifice to build for the future, were excluded. The mission was then carried on by those who were willing to work for perfection. In 1993, he explained how the cowboy motif was a test of loyalty. In order to get everybody away from doing their own thing, those that truly followed the Lamb wherever he may lead them, trusted in them, and wore Western clothes, and even listened to country-western music, simply because he asked them to. Who knew that emulating Travis Tritt was the path to salvation? York's racialist mythology was documented in his so-called scrolls, of which there were about 400. Among them were titles like, The Pale Man, He's a Disease, What Race Was Jesus?, and Sons of Noah. One influence he likely drew from was a book called The Black Hebrews. One of its claims is that because the book of Genesis states that Adam was created by God out of the black soil of the earth, only dark-skinned people are truly human. He also introduced the notion that white skin is a symptom of leprosy. He based this theory on his interpretation of Leviticus 13. Exposed flesh is a symptom of leprosy, so dog penis red would be more accurate. He also asserted that African Americans descend from Hebrew tribes and that Jesus was a man of color. The latter idea has not been entirely ruled out as a possibility, but the rest have not been proven. As far as the prophecy of the white supremacy myth of the curse of Ham, it drew its inspiration from the biblical story of Noah's son, Ham, who encountered his father one day when he was naked and drunk. 
Nothing good ever comes out of seeing your father naked and drunk. Anyway, this is the passage. Noah predicted the physical manifestation of the pale race of Jinn after his son Ham looked at him with the thought of sodomy. This curse was manifested through Ham's fourth son, Canaan, and mentally manifested through Jacob. Thus the Canaanites, meaning cave dweller, were born and lived in caves for 600 years until Moses and Aaron were sent to civilize the lepers. York would claim that Caucasians descended from the Amorites, a Hebrew term for mountain dweller, or the first hillbillies. Speaking of whom, the invention of moonshine did not predate wine. But I digress. According to York, the children of Canaan found refuge in the mountains, where the colder climate alleviated the more painful symptoms of leprosy. With this as a backdrop, and by backdrop, I mean something akin to the kind of matte painting you see beyond the window in a soap opera. He predicted in 1990 that the so-called pale man would continue to suffer from such afflictions as sun blisters, asthma, eczema, AIDS, and other symptoms of leprosy with the advent of global warming. This prediction did come true. These conditions did afflict the white race along with all other races. He said this would all end in the year 2000, at which time Shaitan's reign would have ended. Shaitan is crazy Muslim cult leader speak for the devil. Once the white man would have been broiled on the surface of the earth, beyond the point where it could be tolerated without a dermatological oncologist on retainer, he would seek refuge in the mountains, and the Nawabians would assume leadership of the earth then everybody could wear cowboy hats. He also drew upon a theory about the creation of the white race that found favor with Elijah Muhammad. It concerns the myth of John of Patmos, who was recast as the adversary of revelations. The central antagonistic figure was the evil scientist, Yakub. Yakub created the first white man in a laboratory in an experiment that involved genetic manipulation. Today's scientists would likely move a bunch of slime around in test tubes and petri dishes. As you can tell, I'm not a scientist. Whatever they would do to create a white man, I'm sure it would have nothing to do with slaughtering a gross of black babies, which is what Yakub supposedly did. He was no Malcolm X, that's for sure. York published this passage in one of his scrolls. When the rebellious angel, Iblis, refused to bow to Adam, who was created from dry clay of black mud, formed into human shape, as Allah commanded, he was cast out of heaven. Iblis, Satan, then vowed revenge to tempt mankind to sin. He vowed that he would make a devil, graft him from his own people, that he would teach him how to rule his people for 6,000 years. Yakub set up a genetic experiment on the island of Patmos, then proceeded to create a nation based on trick knowledge, deception, to rule the Nubian race for 6,000 years. The so-called Jew has grafted al-Islam to form their own so-called Judaic nation by which they rule the world. 
not crazy enough for you? Here are some more of his racial theories. The spiritual status of the red, yellow, and brown races would rise and plummet. Native Americans and Asians suffer from Down syndrome, which he says is a side effect of leprosy. Mongoloid, mongrel, mongolism have the same etymological roots. They don't. With the etymology referring to mental deficiency and a disorder of the chromosomes. Two years later, he reversed this position in favor of the Native Americans. Native Americans were robbed of their land and went through much abuse even unto this day. We will see how Yehovah Elo will shower his blessing and protection on the Native American Indian. Indians are the descendants of the Midyanli from Midian, one of the dominant sons of the prophet Abraham. As well-intentioned as this was, Native Americans do not see themselves as the sons of the prophet Abraham, though he customarily reinforced his point that white people are the devil, he conceded that bad black people exist too. As York put it, white people are the devil. They say the Nuwabians are not racist. Bull crap, I am. He might not be. That's his prerogative. I am. White people are devils, and always was, always will be. All over the map as usual, York later had this disclaimer placed on the organization's website. We accept as fact that no one race of people is better than the other. In fact, no one wins the race in racism. He condemned other groups as racists and called upon his followers to overcome their prejudice complex, as noted in the following. And you people who have the prejudice complex, when you see a person, whether his skin is black, white, purple, green, or aquamarine, and that person tells you, I believe in Allah, and I believe in his prophet, embrace that person and squeeze him into yourself. Hold him close and call him brother. I say this unto you, because I know there is a race problem in America. Everyone seems to hate each other. His son Jacob admitted that much of his father's writing was plagiarized. To quote Jacob, He was given Zachariah Sitchin's The Twelfth Planet by a brother who came in and said, You've got to read this book. So he stayed up all night reading it. The next day, he sent the brother and his whole family off on a mission to the Trinidad Mosque to get him out of the way so he could steal the book. He gave it to his secretary and told her to incorporate it into the philosophy. He would give books and ideas to his all-girl research team, and they would cobble it all together. He would then look it over, edit it, and it would come out in the next publication. 1993. The movement was given yet another title, the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. Founded just a year after the release of the film True Romance, in which Dennis Hopper's character noted that the Moors were the men who invaded Sicily and raped its women. All the members of the Nuwabian Nation sold their properties in Brooklyn and used the proceeds to buy a property in Georgia. It contained 
475 acres of farmland. Though his work was highly derivative of what the aforementioned figures wrote and said, he would later write them off as his competition. Referring to the sea change in the lives of African Americans in the 1960s with the race riots, the emergence of the Black Panthers, the ascendance of Black Pride, and other related issues, he said, This made way for the first part of our liberation. What I have to give would liberate the mind of the Nubian nation, and the physical will follow. He claimed to be a spiritual seeker during that period while he lived in Harlem and New York City. Journalist Bill Olsinski summed up York's spiritual quest in a single sentence. York was a young ex-con who figured out a great way to get all the sex and money he wanted. It was to declare himself a god. All this religion stuff was a facade. Another outsider gave his assessment of Dwight York, Sheriff Howard Sills. He investigated York after he and his congregation were settled in Georgia. He gave his impression of York after hearing one of his sermons. I don't understand the appeal York has for his followers. We were expecting a holy man, a dynamic speaker, charisma, or brainwashing. Actually, same thing. But what we heard were jokes. York gave a stand-up comedy act just like Richard Pryor, jokes based on racism, anti-white insults. There were sprinklings of theology, but it was basically a comedy act, and his followers loved it. They would sit there for 40 minutes, an hour, and laugh their heads off and give him a standing ovation. This is not what I expected of a religious leader. Sills made a comment that reinforces one commentator's assessment of York as a so-called crazy wisdom teacher. Did you ever see Little Big Man? Well, I see Dwight York as a contraire. In the Sioux culture, a contraire is a medicine man who does everything backwards. He rides a horse backwards. He'll answer yes when he means no. He washes his hands in the dirt. In fact, York has taken a hypocritical stance, literally saying to his followers, Do as I say, not as I do. York would test his devotees' loyalty by using their wives as his concubines. As one disciple, Belal Phillips, put it, If a sister was good-looking, he would approach her. Isa loved women. Sometimes it would happen there would be four or five sisters pregnant from him at a time and he didn't marry them. They were all concubines, some of them wives of the older brothers, and some of the brothers went for it because they were sort of hypnotized by Isa. Phillips told a story about one specific situation when York told a devotee's wife to come to his house because he had some special work for her. We did not see her all day or night, and we teased Adele that he was laying his wife. Plenty of sisters went in there, in his bedroom. If he wanted a woman, he had her. Phillips expounded on some of York's sexual proclivities. Issa reveals the more seamy side of his teachings in which he promotes immoral and perverted sexual practices, ranging from the despicable to the prohibited. 
in Sex Life of a Muslim, York actually recommends oral and anal sex and sperm drinking, claiming it is halal in Islam. These practices are considered unacceptable by conservative Sunni Muslims. In one of York's lectures, he defended incest. This is an excerpt from that lecture. I do not live under your law. I am not a student enrolled under earth principles. I don't have the morals you have. Your idea of morals is different. Go back in ancient times, you'll find out that Anu was married to his sister, and Ishtar was married to her son back when that existed. I come from a world where we don't have your laws, and the way we go about things is different. I come from the Pharaoh's world, and in the Pharaoh's world, the Pharaoh saw Sarah. He saw her with himself, so he took her. In Abraham's world, that was the wrong thing to do. But the Pharaoh didn't care about Abraham's world, because he was living in his world, in his ritual. He once made a statement in an effort to justify having sex with underage girls. In a letter sent to Najwa and Davina Kirsten, he wrote, Negroids living under the laws of Caucasoids have learned their ways, follow their laws, love their women and her image and skills. If you travel outside of European lands, you find in Africa women marry and have children very young. They live in incest. We are Africans. We have our own laws, morality, customs, rules, regulations. No, not set up by me, but set up for both you and me. That quote was cited during his criminal trial when he was called to answer allegations that he engaged in pedophilia. His determination to live with his flock as a parallel society could have been foretold after he took a trip to Trinidad, Tobago in 1973. In rebuttal to the slanderers, he delved into the issue of how he married a woman from that country. We were not officially a church or a mosque, and we weren't going to the white man's system to get married under Christian laws. That's how we did it. We didn't have our contracts because we didn't have printing facilities. We were poor. Therefore, when I arrived in Trinidad, I met a woman that I wanted to make my wife. We did it by our consummation, become husband and wife. Now, if you have a problem with that, go back to the Bible and read the story of the prophet Abraham and see how Hagar and he got married. Jacob York did an interview about his father that was frank and unvarnished. He spoke with Susan Palmer. Susan, tell me about your parents. Jacob, my mom was the only woman he was ever actually legally married to. My dad married my mother when they were both 18. He met her working at her mother's antique store. He was attending the stateside mosque at the time. His father, my grandfather, was a topic that was hush-hush. There was a rumor going around that he was a gangster, a pimp, spent time in jail, not a good role model for his son. My dad had six kids with my mother. I have two older brothers, not in the movement. We all left with my mother when I was 16. My dad has had 
198 children by many women, according to the FBI. Personally, I know around 60 of my half-brothers and sisters. Susan, what was your father's religious background? Jacob, he wasn't a religious man. Their first daughter died at the age of eight. That's when he rejected God and decided there was no justice in the universe because the drug dealer who lived in the apartment next door had a daughter who was just going off to college and his own daughter had just died. Susan, what was your father like as a person? Jacob, he was a charming, well-spoken guy, extremely funny. He wore blue jeans, cowboy hats, and high-heeled cowboy boots. Dad always wore high heels to disguise the fact he was a little man. He was very juvenile, insecure, very emotional, but my mother would never let us speak against my dad in her presence. She would always say, I have known your father since I was 18. He is a good man. Susan, was he very extravagant? Did he take drugs? Jacob, Dad loved fancy cars and drove a Cadillac, and he would often add a new accessory. He was never into drugs. He occasionally drank some wine. Fame was his drug. He wanted to be famous, like a rock star. According to Jacob, Dwight wanted to become a famous singer. He even owned two record labels, Passion and York Records. Jacob Many artists came through his passion studio, and he helped promote their careers. But as soon as they became more successful than he was, he dumped them and would turn to someone else. He was a crappy singer. He had terrible taste. I told him, look, Dad, this stuff you're singing is shit. Nobody wants to hear that shit. I remember the time he was all worked up, excited about arranging a tour to Japan. But anybody can get a tour in Japan. He would dress up in a white suit, part his hair in the middle, and sing these sappy-ass 1940s ballads in nightclubs. And his record was a hit in Britain. Even his flunkies are embarrassed about his CDs. But he had good taste in choosing new artists. Many famous singers recorded at his studio. But he realized he had failed as a singer. So he turned to religion. Susan, what was your mother's role in the Ansaro Allah community? Jacob, the AAC was a good thing for the neighborhood. He did make Brooklyn clean and safe and drug-free. That part is true. But the only reason it was a success was because of my mother. She ran the business side. She dealt with people. My mom would give him 25, 50 grand a week for allowance. That's all he cared about. Susan, what was your parents' relationship like? Jacob, he was always surrounded by women. In Brooklyn, he had seven wives. She would say, good, now I don't have to sleep with him. She can do it. She would make friends with his mistresses, and they would work together running things. One of my dad's other wives worked closely with my mom, and then she betrayed her. My mom oversaw the whole operation in Brooklyn. We used to have a bookstore, a laundromat, a restaurant, grocery store, and apartment buildings. 
She was in charge of finances for the AAC and had been saving up to send the kids to college. She had been very careful to keep it a secret from him, just how much money was coming in. But one of his other wives wanted to get in his good graces, so she told him about all the money that was in a fund, especially for the children. My dad came to my mom with two of his bodyguards and ordered her to hand it over. She was upset because he had always preached that the kids from the Ansaru Allah community were special, that they would all go to college, and they would be the great doctors, lawyers, and politicians of the next generation. Then, in the late 80s, 30 to 40 kids suddenly came of age, ready to go to college. They had the credentials to get in. They were motivated. But instead, my dad took the first two girls as soon as they turned 18 and made them his own concubines. There was a lot of talk behind his back about that. Then, in 1988, he took the next two and married them off to two gentlemen from the Middle East. You could buy the tapes of the wedding in the bookstores. He made a big deal of it, a lavish wedding, to compensate for his own decision to not send these girls to college. Then more kids kept coming of age, and it turned out to be a huge problem. The next year there were eight more who turned 18. Then in 1989, he blew all the money on a house in the Catskills, Camp Jazir Abba. He had bought a camp a few years before worth five to six million. It was a monstrosity that needed a lot of repair. My mom was very upset at that. Then he took the children's food money and bought two vans. At that point, once he got control of the money, my mother decided she had had it. She left with me and my brothers and sisters. The Community in order to join Dwight York's community, or cult, one had to demonstrate their willingness to devote themselves to the culture and the cause by applying themselves within the rubric of so-called commitment mechanisms. These included renouncing their ties to their family, investing their own personal assets as an investment, voluntary labor, the so-called mortification of dissidents by way of ritual humiliation and or punishment. Surrender to Dr. York, which included acknowledging and accepting him as a divine being. Having dealt with all that, the next step was to fill out a form and be photographed. It was on this form that they indicated their willingness to renounce their biological relatives in writing. One question germane to this process was, how do you feel about entrusting your child to other people? Sleeping quarters were segregated by gender, with husbands, wives, and unmarried couples sleeping separately while maintaining intimate ties. The accommodations were short on comfort. The women, referred to as sisters, would be assigned a bedroom where three to six of them would sleep on the floor with a mat as their only comfort and a bag of their personal belongings nearby. They shared one bathroom. The brothers didn't have it much better. They slept on the floor or on shelves in what were characterized as barracks. New members submitted all their money and whatever furniture they owned to the community. It was like private communism. The members even shared clothing. There was no word on whether this included underwear. 
As previously mentioned, contact with outsiders, whether friends or family, was verboten. Outsiders were given a name, kafirs or unbelievers. Their term for secular society was dunya. York was practically living like a king compared to his followers. His family, concubines, male executives, and his bodyguards had their own apartments with their biological families near the mosque on Bushwick Avenue in Brooklyn. There were two levels of membership. There was a high turnover of young converts who examined the organizational culture and ultimately decided to convert to mainstream Islam. Every Sunday afternoon, Q&A sessions were held. The ministers would conduct these meetings on York's behalf in black bookstores across the United States and West Indies. Those tasked with fundraising and the seeking of new converts were called the propagators. They sold oils and incense on the street, as York had. They also passed out flyers and sold York's scrolls. When the propagators' daily haul failed to meet expectations, they were chastised or beaten up by York's bodyguards. The community had its own radio channel, and if someone failed to bring in the expected daily revenue, an announcement would be made over the radio that would go something like, Brother so-and-so did not turn in the quota this morning. Then they would send sisters out as spies on the brothers and see what they were doing and come back and report what they saw. One woman noted that when she began dating another member, the only way he could see her was if she gave him money to give to the brass so that they would think he earned his quota for the day. Polygamy was baked into the belief system and the culture of the group, though in truth it was only the most prominent male members who were permitted to have more than one wife. Such a man would have to have belonged to the organization for at least ten years to marry an additional woman. A document entitled Hadrat Fatima Part Two asserted that, in an ideal circumstance, a man would have four wives. Wife number one, a domestic wife. Wife number two, a companion wife. Wife number three, an educated wife. Wife number four, a cultured wife. The domestic wife did all the housework. The companion wife listened to her husband as he detailed his trials and tribulations while offering friendship as a balm for his troubled brow. It was the educated wife's charge, quote, to be an encyclopedia of facts for her husband. She was also required to educate the children. The cultured wife's duty was to dream up money-making schemes for her husband. She was also required to possess knowledge of arts and culture. The coup de grace was to be, quote, naturally talented at pleasing him sexually. York once posed for a photograph with four wives who played these roles in his life. A former member and wife revealed the reality of the situation. That was just to make us look more organized. He had a whole bunch of wives, at least 50. He just wrote that to appear more orthodox to the Muslims. Regardless of their true numbers, York had his own harem, and he put them all to work. They lived with him or in apartments nearby. They worked in the publishing office, 
and the recording studio. Dwight York was the poster boy for the operation, but it was his women who did all the legwork. Mothers and pregnant women would apply for welfare and submit the money to the community's treasury. This rationale was given when the practice was called into question. Issa justified this dependency on welfare by saying that during the time of slavery, all black people got a certain amount of mules, and after slavery it stopped. So this is a way of the white people paying black people back. No acknowledgement of the income taxes paid by African Americans. Members were paired up as mates. There were no marriage ceremonies. They were put together by York, and it was done for the men. Sometimes he put incompatible people together as a prank of sorts. It may have been a joke to him, but for the couples, their relationships were to be taken seriously, with the expectation that they have children. One female member located in Montreal joined the Quebec community in 1983. She observed that a great deal of spiritual prestige was bestowed upon wives and mothers in the organization. She saw this as a welcome contrast to what she witnessed in white society, where she saw that women are only valued based on their career-related achievements. Mother, it's the greatest title that one could ever have. You're supposed to be educated, not just make being a wife and mother the last resort. In the Western society, it's a sort of last resort. If you don't have brains, then you could be a wife and mother and let a man take care of you. But in Islam, a woman is different. A woman is very educated because if she is not, her children won't be educated. She has to be educated. If you're educated and know how to run a home and take care of your husband and he takes care of you, then this is the best thing that can happen. He is a happy part of you, and you are a happy part of him, and both a happy part of the children. She defended the fact that women depend on men in Islam. The man is seen as the head. The women can't get to paradise without the man, because the man was created in the heavens. Adam was up there with the angels, while Eve was created on earth, and in order for the woman to get back to heaven, she has to be part of the man. In other words, woman is nothing without the man. She said that the more labor pains a woman suffers, the more her sins will be purged from her. The more children she has, the more eligible she will be to enter paradise. She defended the practice of wife-beating, but with a caveat. Only as a last resort, and not in front of family or friends. Only in private, and not on the face, to show marks, but on the soles of the feet. Only the pros got to beat their wives. When asked how she liked living in the community with the Ansars, she said, I think it is perfectly fulfilling, because you do need someone to encourage you, someone to say, okay, it's time to pray. I think you do need a communal life, the community finance where all the money is put into one, seeing about each other, taking care of your brothers and sisters' needs. It's a good way. It makes you very strong, but it takes a lot of washing on the inside. People come in with egos, which need checking, because they don't want to be told to come and go at certain times. Communal life has regulations. 
just like society has regulations, but only there is a broader expansion in society where in a commune everybody has to check. She didn't consider domestic chores to be as bothersome in this circumstance because of the collaborative approach. It's just like in a house where there's one woman, but only thing, here is a number of people participating in all the household chores. Some take care of the children, cooking, sewing, teaching, washing, and if one is a dancer, she gives dance classes and things like that. She was required to wear a veil, as all the women were. Commenting on this, she said, It was an empowering experience. I felt superior wearing the veil because it was not easy. There were many women who liked everything about the movement except the veil. I liked fashion, but at that time I put away Western ideas of beauty when I became a Muslim. I had to be strong to make such a move, knowing that when you walked down the streets, it made me feel like Eve when I learned that Eve dressed this way after the world got populated. Also Sarah, Abraham's wife, and all the other righteous women in the Bible. Personally, I felt I got more respect from men, especially men who knew themselves, who had an idea about who they are. Her marriage to a brother in the community was short-lived, so she reconciled with her ex-husband, who is a Rastafarian. She still observes the tenets of Islam, but does not go to the same extremes as she did during her life with the Ansars. Children. Note, I typed that word with my fingers crossed. Children occupied a central role in the AAC, especially when it came to its beliefs regarding the apocalypse. Where I grew up, parents relied on their children to go to a convenience store with a note to buy cigarettes, Pepsi, and lottery tickets. The way the AAC saw it, their children's parents were reliant upon them as their salvation. Ansar children were raised communally without the involvement of their parents. One woman objected to this practice, and it was predominant in her decision not to join the group. I didn't like being told I couldn't visit my children except at certain times of the day, that I could not just walk in and do what I wanted to with my child. I was told that we do this because our children are not ours, that they only come through us, and we have bad habits from the dunya, and we would inflict these habits on our children so it is best that they stay pure and stay separate from us. Dr. York, or Imam Isa, outlined his idea of so-called genetic breeding as part of his millenarian plan in a newsletter called the Nubian Bulletin. He urged Ansar parents to procreate in earnest so that they could give birth to the 144,000 Nubian children who would go on to rapture their parents once the reign of Shaitan ended in the year 2000. He warned the Nuwabians not to choose light-skinned mates for fear that their progeny, after four generations, might have straight hair. God forbid. Expounding on this, he wrote that the so-called pale man is trying to break the code in order to break the Nubian race and repair his own decaying race. 
he will try to pick apart our genes and take what is beneficial to him and incorporate it into himself. He reinforced this notion with his conspiracy that Caucasians invented sperm banks, fertilized egg banks, and DNA banks for that purpose. This is a description of his principles on eugenics. If a man has sex after his three-month period of perfection and a woman before, then they will produce a perfect child. If the man has sex before the three-month period of perfection, whereas the woman abstains for three months, then her genes will dominate the male genes, and the child will come out looking like her. The sex of the child can be determined by diet, for food with zinc will help produce a male child. When an especially attractive woman joined the sect, Imam would assign her a job in one of his businesses, and from there she would become his new concubine. The other men were cut off from their women if they did not bring in enough money. When they were rewarded with female companionship, they were given time in a place referred to as the Green Room, which was also called Eden. The lucky couple made love amid a mural backdrop of tropical flora. A former member shed light on this practice. Resurfacing is the history of one of our schools, Islam. Green rooms were lodgings for couples who achieved a certain criterion, to spend a night therein. We lived communally, and genders were separated. A few fault-finding former fellows feel all the embarrassment they wanted to control our sex lives. Followers joined the Ansarola community to grow spiritually, advance the cause, and were always free to leave. The children described their childhoods in the cult in positive terms. To quote Jacob York, At first we, the York family, lived in the top floor of the building in Brooklyn. We were the royal family. We, my brothers and sisters, would get up at six, and by seven we were in school. I played with the other kids. Then I went to the AAC boarding school from the age of 10 to 16. I liked it. We were highly privileged children. Baba, it means father in Arabic, that's what we called him then, would take us on trips by plane to the Middle East, and we would all go out to museums, to the zoo, to the theater. We would all dress in white, we had good food, good teachers, a great education. There would be a lot of parties. It was fun. Sometimes my brother and I wore gold crowns for special occasions. I felt uncomfortable at home because of how everyone was always kissing my dad's ass. Can you bless my baby? These women were always asking me, shoving their babies in my face. It was weird. He described the school's curriculum. The kids in the community all spoke Arabic and some Hebrew. We also studied Nubic. It's a combination of Ebonics and bad Arabic, mispronounced. He made it up himself. I didn't learn to speak English until I was 10. In 1984, the truancy officer came and found that none of the children who grew up in the community could speak a word of English. So the Board of Education insisted that all the children have private tutoring in English. So we had a crash course in English, and then we were sent out to regular schools. The tutor would come every evening and help us.
One convert described what led to her involvement with the group. My whole childhood I spent with white people, and it was not until I was in high school that I found a group of black friends. I was into black awareness, black history, anything black attracted me. A friend lent her one of Dwight York's books. She described the impact it made on her. Being raised in a white family and knowing everything about white superiority, it made me feel good to know Jesus is black. The first man, Adam, was black. I intended to go the full length to get involved strongly. Her involvement was temporary. She details the long-term impact it made on her, especially in terms of how it affected her perspective on white people. I always see them as devils, but I had white friends growing up. My first seven years were with white people. But when I got to high school and I found out about black power, I realized they were the reason for a lot of black people's problems. Before joining Ansar, I see them as the reasons to why we are the way we are. After joining Ansar, I saw their nature. Ansar taught me about the nature of the white man, which is a devilish nature. I saw their nature as human devil. They are like the devil's seed, but all of them are not evil. I think the maker chooses who he wants to be good, and he makes them good, but in such a way that they will help black people. They are used in this way. The black man has a natural instinct to be good. The white man, it's easier for him to be bad and harder to be good. The difference between us is the physical heart. The movement had a prison outreach program and reformed many former criminals. Crackdown. In 1983, Dwight York bought an 81-acre camp near the town of Liberty in Sullivan County, New York. It would be called Camp Jazir Abba. They built six bungalows in a large main house that was built around a double-wide trailer. The families would spend summer vacation there. It sounded harmless on paper, but it was protected by armed guards and dogs even though canines are traditionally persona non grata in the lives of Muslims. A newsletter issued at that time promoted workshops in survival skills. It even featured a photo from military training exercises, complete with rifles. In October of 1983, the New York State Police received complaints about gunshots heard in Camp Abba Jazir. One informant said he saw several guns and thousands of rounds of ammunition at the camp. In May of 1989, the BATF investigated guns that were purchased at gun stores in Long Island by two of the organization's members. Dr. York accompanied them and drove them from location to location. From May to June of that year, 19 assault rifles and over 4,000 rounds of ammunition were purchased. After documenting reports from former members, the FBI launched a full domestic terrorism investigation. The view of the AAC in one report characterized the community as a criminal enterprise disguised as a religious congregation. Some of the most prominent members of the group defected and were most outspoken about his activities and policies. Two of his wives filed child support suits against him. One former member named Sadiq Red said that the living conditions in the male barracks where he lived 
were devoid of heat, hot water, and beds. This, while York dwelled in relative luxury. He described his womanizing, which he considered to be irresponsible. He would meet a person and their wife and sleep with their wife just to show he had control over you. The FBI described their peacekeeping operation as a protection racket. One informant's story described this practice. They muscled their way into a security contract with a number of local businesses and used force against the security company already under contract. On apprehending a shoplifter, the AAC guards would not call the police, but beat up the culprit themselves. The AAC brought in five to $6,000 from this practice every month. They were congratulated by then New York City Mayor Ed Koch for eliminating crime and narcotics from the streets of Brooklyn. They were also investigated for welfare fraud. It was after a large-scale campaign of derision by mainstream Muslims when York renounced Islam. According to Jacob York, it was motivated by self-preservation. When Dad wrote 360 questions to ask a Muslim, this got a negative reaction from the Muslim community. He already had a lot of New York mosques opposing him. This was after the assassination of a Jewish journalist by a Muslim. The same man came to see Dad the day before and asked him to come downstairs and talk to him. But Dad never went because he was changing his clothes and kept getting delayed. There were always a lot of people waiting to talk to him. Then, the next day, he heard this guy had murdered a Jew. He concluded that someone had taken out a contract on him as a heretic. That if he'd gone downstairs, it would have been him who was killed. He was anti-Muslim after that. The Jew in question was Meyer Kayon, founder of the Jewish Defense League, who was murdered by a Muslim terrorist named Saeed Nasser. In 360 questions to ask a Muslim, he declared that he was then the Lamb, liberator of women. Thenceforth, the female faithful were to remove their veils and robes. Should it please them, they could wear short pants, drive automobiles, and even preach in the mosque, which was renamed as the Tabernacle. During this period in the early 1990s, the organization was renamed the Holy Tabernacle Ministries, a name that was inspired by Hebrew motifs. The Star of David was adopted as the primary representative symbol. Titles like Imam and Mahdi were done away with. Their new preferences were for Raboni and the Lamb. They also took on the umbrella name of United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. They sold all the properties they owned in Brooklyn and relocated to Georgia. In Georgia, they went to work constructing an Egyptian village, which would serve as their western Mecca. This is where the real trouble began. In Georgia, the cult built their Shangri-La with the following features included. A 40-foot black pyramid. A smaller gold pyramid. Pillars and benches were placed along the pedestrian paths. A five-foot concrete scarab beetle. A large sphinx with an African face. A museum of black history. 
a boulevard lined with eight-foot animal-headed Egyptian gods, a black Jesus crucified on an ankh crowned with the feathered headdress of the Plains Indians. The site was christened Tama Ray. It was built by unpaid laborers and visiting devotees from 1993 to 2000. By 2002, it was populated by 400 members. The idea was that it would be an Egyptian theme park. It was a for-profit enterprise. They would accept visitors of all races, but deeper involvement required an African pedigree. Every year, the clan celebrated Savior's Day, which was York's birthday. One woman described her experience with this festival. I got the call to go to the land early in the 1990s. My husband went first, and I stayed because my father was ill. Finally, I got to go. We all drove to Georgia in a big van. The van was driving past. I didn't know this was the land, but I put my hands on the window, and suddenly I felt them tingle. I felt I was home. The van suddenly turned left, and it was the land. There was a big party going on, and I was invited to sing for Dad's birthday. After the party, late at night, everyone sat around in a circle in chairs, and he made me feel so welcome. The sun was going down, and I felt so happy. It was like I was back home. He made me feel so welcome. We all wore cowboy hats. He spoke. I got everything he said. I felt like I was levitating. Then, after a while, it didn't make any sense at all what he said, because I felt so light, like I was floating. After, we talked in the van. Going back to the hotel, we talked. And we all felt the same thing. Tamaray was also characterized as a Noah's Ark, with its motif tied in with the cult's apocalyptic notions. In 1993, York disclosed to his flock that he was an extraterrestrial from another planet that came to Earth to rescue the 144,000 chosen ones from a catastrophically destructive event. I, Yonun, am an Anunnaki, or what you would call an extraterrestrial. I am what you would call an angelic being from Iluun, a tri-solar system with 38 moons and 19 planets. I have incarnated here in this form to act as a human being for the sole purpose of saving the children of the Elohim, Anakwai, the chosen 144,000. I, Yunun, have come to save the children of the Elohim, Anukai, from being killed as you bring your planet near to what could be its total destruction. His disciples believed his claim that a mothership from the planet Risk would descend on the pyramid on May 5, 2003, and save the 144,000. One woman from England moved to the site. She described her motivation to do so. I had heard about the land, a place where all black people were welcome and would be safe. I had the feeling something bad was going to happen, so I saved up to come out here. I took time off, and as soon as I saw the pyramids from the bus window, I knew I belonged here. I felt I was home. It was my land. Thousands of others descended on the site for the same reasons. 
The group was not quite as well received by natives of Georgia. They thought they were bizarre, as reflected in many op-ed pieces published by newspapers. Georgia's Sheriff of Putnam County in 2003, Howard Sills, described his experience of interacting with Dwight York. The first time we met, I didn't know who he was. This was when I went to the compound with the building inspector. I accompanied the building inspector with my gun on. We told the guard who we were, then waited 30 minutes. Finally, we saw a group of men start to walk toward us down the driveway. There was one man in the center and half a dozen surrounding him. They had this big, mean look. The man in the middle wore black pajamas with gold embroidery and gold chains. He was a small, thin man, and when he came up to us, he broke into a diatribe and proceeded to curse the building inspector. No good son of a bitch, he said. His entourage were badass-looking guys and just stood there, staring. Then he suddenly broke off his diatribe and turned around and left. The building inspector came back the next day and was eventually allowed in so he could do his job. Then, a week later, the police of the Atlanta Crime Division sent me a tape of York speaking, and I said, Hell, that was York I met. After that, we were besieged with calls about the criminal activities of some of the members. We get a lot of calls from prisons because of the Nuwabian outreach. They have their literature in prison libraries. They have missionaries go in. I asked to meet with them several times. I spoke with him after the raid when he was in my jail, but he and I have never had a conversation without counsel about criminal matters. I have always found York to be pleasant with me. Of course, his flunkies call me a racist. Sills described the first occasion when the Nuwabians and Georgian legal officials clashed, which was in 1997. The guards at the gate refused to let a local building inspector in. I got a court order and went out there. Let the building inspector on your property. Do not interfere, I told them. Here we were, facing the guards who were wearing guns and saying, No, you can't come on our land. We are a sovereign nation. What was I supposed to do? They had guns, and my job was to disarm them. I had the choice of going from conversation to deadly force, and there was no in-between. They were begging for a Waco. So I just withdrew from the building inspector and came back the next day. I could not let them willfully disobey the law. I became aware of what a volatile situation I had been dragged into. When I heard them say, We are not subject to your laws. Ultimately, they received a permit to keep a large metal building on the site. A fire marshal was turned away at the gate. In 1998, there were disputes over zoning issues. To quote Sills, They were on TV. The network showed the nightclub in a 100-foot storage building. It had been turned into a disco, multi-level, with a stage, restrooms, a gift shop, a bar. The area was not zoned for commercial use. They had no license to sell alcohol. Sills brought the fire marshal with him to the gate. A booklet of fire regulations was shown to the Nuwabian administration. As Sills put it, he told them it was unsafe because of wires, generators, the stove. 
You can't occupy it, he told them. But they kept right on. Finally, the inspector came in and padlocked the building. Legal inspection gave them the opportunity to get it rezoned, but they did not succeed. Then the injunction became permanent. The nightclub was locked up. A fine of $45,750 was to be paid by the organization. Sills sought an injunction to prevent the use of the Ramses nightclub. The Nuwabians' application to build an Egyptian theme park was refused. The Nuwabians commented on this. We bring too much consciousness and awareness focus on Egypt. Our money was not going into the town folk who try to monopolize on different venues inside the city limits. To avoid trouble with the sheriff, you must use Horton Homes, mobile homes. But our constructions are Native American or African. Egypt is in Africa. If we had used their constructions and supported local trade, they would have helped us. Down south, there's the good old boys circuit. Another member defended the club. It was never a nightclub. I don't know why they called it a nightclub. It was just our social club, where we could sit comfortably with our kids and watch a show, have a meeting. You know we don't drink alcohol. To deflect legal responsibility for the enterprises, Dwight York transferred official ownership designations from Tama Ray Property to Tama Ray Enterprises. June 22, 1999. Just as thousands of attendees arrived at the compound to celebrate Savior's Day, Sheriff Sills padlocked the doors shut. The attendees stood outside chanting, We love sunshine, in defiance, a statement about the fact that they could not enter the buildings to enjoy the festivities that were planned. Many of these people remained in the area after York refused to appear at a court hearing about zoning disputes and was at risk of being remanded to jail. Ultimately, the case was dismissed when it turned out the summons was mailed to the wrong address. The Nuwabians became violent and threatening toward their adversaries. To quote one of their opponents, journalist Rob Peacher, I started to get death threats, anonymous phone calls. Rob Peacher, if you don't start printing the truth, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you. In the fall of 2000, I was in the grocery store in Angles, and I saw two Nuwabians. They followed me around. They started to yell things at me. They called me a liar, a racist. One was holding a beer bottle. As I was standing at the cash trying to buy my groceries, he reaches around bangs on the counter and threatens to knock my teeth out. The cashier doesn't say a word. I walked out, not hurrying, until I was close to the car, and then they started to run towards me. I drove away, but as I left, I saw Rufus, another journalist, there, getting out of his car and going into the store. He was my replacement at the Eatonton Messenger. The Nuwabians attacked him, beat him up, his wife was waiting in the car, drove up, honked, and he jumped into the car and escaped. After that, he started to carry a gun when he went out shopping. It was very difficult for me not being able to take my children places. The FBI found out about a plot to kill the sheriff, and there was a threat against Sill's child. 
There were flyers circulating saying bad stuff about me. All it took was one long, crazy wob to decide he was going to be Nuwabian of the Year and take me out. For example, at Savior's Day 2000, there was a guy out there who was apparently too crazy for even the Nuwabians, so they kicked him off their property. And he pulled his car around to the front of the compound and set his own person and his car on fire. I was concerned some crazy like that might attack me or my family. When one Nuwabian was asked by Susan Palmer what he thinks of Peacher, he said, Peacher tries to sway the public to believe that we are a bunch of partying, law-disrespecting Negroids. They don't want black, educated people doing powerful things. Sheriff Sills was targeted, with his wife, son, and himself being stalked and threatened. Meanwhile, Jacob York was determined to help members who were looking for a way out. He created an underground railroad of sorts for them. One such detail was an email address at which they could contact him and begin the process of making arrangements for their escape. He even set up a halfway house for them to stay in until they got their lives back together. From there, he would help them get jobs and establish other aspects of their secular life. He recalled the time when he helped a 50-year-old woman purchase a house by outfitting her with a down payment. As he recalled, She had two girls, twins, that were turned over to the land. I co-signed a mortgage loan for a house. She had five kids, two from him. One has Down syndrome. And her three kids were sodomized by that man. And she was 50 years old. I have two half-sisters from her, so I thought I should help her out, so they could all live in a home. May 8, 2002. The FBI executed a military raid on Tomare's Egyptian village. Sheriff Sills described it as a joint operation planned between the FBI and my office, and I provided the jail for Dwight York. Sills learned some disturbing new information about York from Jacob. As he recalled, I knew about the child molestation long before Jacob York contacted me. In December 1997, I received my first inkling that something was afoot when a woman came and told me that young underage girls were getting pregnant by York out at the compound. Did I launch an investigation? No. I had nothing substantial to go on, but we started to get anonymous phone calls complaining about child molestation. Then, in the spring of 1998, I received an anonymous letter claiming that York was molesting kids. In September, we opened an investigation and began to gather information. In September 1998, we got another anonymous letter with a diagram of the compound which showed which buildings the boys and girls slept in. This was obviously someone who knew. So we continued our investigation, but we had no names yet. I interviewed ex-members who called me, who told me about illegal acts involving children. Then Jacob York came forward, putting me in touch with 12 people who were willing to come forth and tell their story. We found we had the biggest case of child molestation in the history of the United States. Big in terms of the number of victims, but also in terms of the time frame. 
According to the allegations, York's molestations went back for three generations, with kids, with their mothers, and even with their grandmothers when they were young, back in the Ansaro Ala community days in Brooklyn. The FBI would not be turned away. 300 agents of the ATF, the local sheriff's office, and the FBI piled into armored vehicles and rammed through the gate. The FBI's SWAT team were armed with machine guns, glocks, hand grenades, head masks, body shields, and tear gas. Some of the agents descended from helicopters. They kicked down the doors and threw tear gas canisters into the windows. They launched the raid as a surprise attack, having learned their lesson from the siege on Waco, where they had to answer for the deaths of 85 adults and children due to fire, tear gas, suffocation, and gunshots. This time around, they were prepared to deal with casualties. Fire trucks, ambulances, body bags, and even refrigerator trucks were at the ready. There were no casualties. The residents did not retaliate. They got down on the ground face down with their hands on their heads. 65 adults were on the premises. 25 of them were men, and most of them were elderly. The FBI did not get the results they desired. They didn't find weapons or any signs of child abuse. Dr. York's home was searched, and $400,000 in cash was found and seized. It was charged with 116 counts germane to child molestation. The Putnam County Grand Jury reduced the charges to 74 counts of child molestation, 29 counts of aggravated molestation, 4 counts of statutory rape, 2 counts of the sexual exploitation of a minor, and 5 counts of enticing a child for sexual purposes. As journalist Bill Olsinski put it, State prosecutors literally had to cut back the number of counts listed, from well beyond a thousand to slightly more than two hundred, because they feared a jury simply wouldn't believe the magnitude of York's evil. The case was the nation's largest child molestation prosecution ever directed at a single person, in terms of number of victims and number of alleged criminal acts. Kathy Jones known as York's main wife, was arrested along with him outside a supermarket on the morning of the raid. She was implicated in both the federal and state charges of child sexual abuse. This was due to the fact that she was accused of assisting Dr. York as he took some of the children of Tom Ray to Disney World to have sex with them. Three of his other wives also received indictments. Kathy Johnson was charged with four counts of child molestation, one aggravated. Esteter Cole was slapped with one count of child molestation. Chandra Lampkin and Khadijah Merritt were both charged with three counts of child molestation, two aggravated. Five of the children were taken into protective custody on the day of the raid and were examined by doctors, social workers, and psychologists. Four of them tested positive for sexually transmitted diseases. No evidence could be found that they had had sexual contact with Dwight York. Some of the cult's members insisted that they snuck off to a barn at night to party. Sheriff Sills explained why the children were taken into protective custody. 
We received information about these five children that was corroborated by others that caused us to seek out the protective order. We had an order from the juvenile court signed by a judge prior to going on the compound. The children, we suspect, are victims of child molestation. There was no evidence directly linking York to the purchase of the firearms, so he was not charged with possession of such at the time. Trials Dwight York had a serious legal battle ahead of him. He wound up receiving state charges of child molestation, which were compounded by new federal charges when the Mann Act was introduced. The Mann Act of 1910 made it a felony to transport minors across state lines for the objective of sexual exploitation. A federal grand jury indicted York and Kathy Johnson for four counts of moving children across state borders for sexual purposes. This was a reference to the time when they moved the group in spring of 1993 from New York to Georgia. The Disney trip was also prosecuted for that reason. When the FBI got involved, the case was redirected into federal court. He was denied bail. Johnson was given a $75,000 bond by the feds, though it was later rescinded to keep her in jail. Chandra Lampkin and Khadijah Merritt were held in jail without bond. Isidur Cole was released on a $25,000 bond. Johnson took a plea deal, admitting she knew a felony was in progress, and she did nothing to stop it. For confessing to this, she received a more serious charge of crossing state lines with a minor for the purposes of sexual abuse. On October 25th, York appeared in court. He pleaded not guilty. January 23rd, 2003. Dwight York appeared in court once again. This time he took his lawyer's advice and settled for a plea bargain. He pleaded guilty to the following charges. One count of transporting children across state lines for illegal sex. One count of illegally structuring financial transactions. 77 counts of child molestation. 40 counts of aggravated child molestation. One count of child exploitation. Two counts of influencing witnesses. As part of the plea bargain, both federal and state officials agreed that York should be handed a sentence that would include eligibility for parole after 15 years served. June 25, 2003. U.S. District Judge Hugh Lawson rejected the plea bargain. Lawson was dubbed a racist by York's followers. January 2003. Though it wasn't exactly a recent development, Dwight York seemed to be cracking up. He appeared in court and his behavior was deemed by the media to be irrational. He dressed as a moor, complete with a red fez bearing a black tassel. He made what was dubbed a nonsensical statement. That nonsensical statement went as follows. I am secured and do not give permission to use my name. If you proceed, it will cost you $500,000. All deals are off if Pryor continues to use my name. Some of his followers were present, and they handed out flyers that notified the reader that 
Dr. York had copyrighted his name, and all his aliases and unauthorized use of his name would be liable to fines. They bore an official-looking stamp, which read, Clerk of Federal Moorish Cherokee Consular Court, USA. July 1, 2003. This time York appeared in court dressed as a Plains Indian, complete with buckskin and a feathered headdress. He announced to the court that he was Chief Black Eagle. He claimed that due to his American Indian heritage, the United States government had no jurisdiction over him. As he put it in his address to the court, I would like to be transferred to members of my tribe. All I am asking is that the court recognize that I am an indigenous person. I am a Moorish Cherokee, and I cannot get a fair trial if I am being tried by settlers or confederates. He demanded to be turned over to the Yamasi Native American government. He revoked his guilty plea. He said he was under duress when he confessed to his guilt. I was in a two-man cell with rats. After being tortured and being told that I would get a thousand years, they made it look like a racial issue. I was on the cross. He insisted upon being tried by a non-white court comprised of what he called his peers. York and his followers tried several methods to establish and uphold his credibility, like creating documents of invalid legality, and even went so far as to claim he wasn't even a citizen of the United States. Despite their efforts to characterize him as just a victim of a racist government, those who knew the real truth about York and the Nuwabians knew who the real victims were. Journalist Rob Peacher met one of his victims and recalled how it made him feel. I traveled to New York and met with one of his victims and with another in Atlanta. They were both still just children, the sweetest, nicest little girls you'd ever want to meet. What sick, twisted, perverted bastard would want to hurt them? Prison is not good enough for him. It consumed my life. All of us who were involved, it consumed our lives. We ate, drank, slept Nuwabians. Through all of it, I kind of got to hate the Nuwabians. It was hard to maintain my objectivity. Peter wrote at length about the sexual abuse of minors that was rampant behind the scenes of the Nuwabian compound. One article was entitled, York's accusers describe years of sexual abuse. The piece described what Peacher described as quasi-religious pedophilia and sexual slavery. Due to the inability to procure an unbiased jury, the trial was given a change of venue. January 2004. Testimonies by victims of abuse in the Nuwabian compound proved to be unreliable. They would make a claim and then retract. Some of them made claims that were at variance with statements they had given in the past. This is common in many cases when sexual abuse is alleged to have happened. January 23, 2004. After deliberating for seven hours over two days, York was found guilty of four counts of racketeering and six charges of child molestation. April 22, 2004. 
Dr. Malachi Z. York was sentenced to 135 years in federal prison. The government seized the Tom Array property. His attorney launched an appeal, but the conviction was upheld. His followers have rebuked his conviction with bizarre spiritual dogma and conspiracy theories, but they are no more credible than he is. One of the organization's apostates is a woman named Pauline. She bore three children for York until he grew bored of her and banned her at the advent of a spell with ill health, upon which she was unable to work. She left home at 16 to join the cult. She recalled her experience in the following statement. I found him very charismatic. He took my breath away. I was 18 or 19 when we got together. I wanted to go to college, but women were not allowed to go to college. They were too easily influenced, he said. I was under a lot of brain power control at the time. It wasn't rape. It was consensual, but it was terrible the first few times. I wanted to hide. I was a virgin, but then I was glad to be his wife and stayed with York for years. I had prestige in the community as one of his wives and mother of his children. But then he put me out. I was pregnant with my third child. I was very ill and couldn't work. He saw I was of no use to him and put me out. No money, no milk for the children, no pampers. I had to go on medical assistance. I was suffering from stress. We were living in Liberty, New York. That was while he was the lamb. I had a nervous breakdown. Thank you for listening to Human Monsters. Bye for now.